Hello, and welcome to Curious Objects, brought to you by the magazine Antiques. I'm Ben Miller. If you're a longtime listener and you reach back into the hazy memory of Curious Objects of yore before, yes, even COVID-19, you may recall an erudite young gentleman who was not only a stellar guest on this podcast, but who actually co-hosted a number of episodes with me. And now that same young man, although we're both a little older, has written a book that I think if you enjoy this podcast, you will find delightful. Uh, It's called The New Antiquarians, and the author is, of course, Michael Diaz-Griffith. Michael, it's nice to have you back. Oh, it's nice to be back, Ben. Thank you so much, and thank you for uh, that very kind introduction, although I was once young and now I'm old, so let's see if I'm still erudite. Maybe not. <laughs> happens to the best of us. Maybe, maybe I'm declining. Some people get more erudite with age. I wouldn't that's be surprised true. if that's the case for you. That's true. That's true. My cognition is hopefully up to snuff. Let's test it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So today's curious object, of course, is your book, The New Antiquarians. Uh, and we're going to talk all about it. But um, first, I hope listeners will allow us a moment of nostalgia because I was just thinking about some of the uh, interviews that you and I had a chance to do back in the day with, um, you know, Jennifer Tonkovic at the Morgan Library, where you and I took turns sitting in J.P. Morgan's desk. (laughs) And, uh, of course, Becky McGuire and Kara Zimmerman at Christie's educating us about, uh, about porcelain and about outsider art and Bill Trailer, those were the good old days. They really were. And, you know, we were still co-hosting episodes together when the pandemic began. So even though it's not the warmest, happiest memory, I, I remember, you know, trying to track what was happening to the antiques world and to the trade in particular in those early days. And it's uh, it, it's kind of a bright spot in my memory of lockdown, to be honest. So all yeah. really fond associations. That was very interesting. You and I had a number of uh, conversations around that time about what was happening in the marketplace. Yeah. And it was fascinating because, of course, well, you know, COVID was uh, uh, terrible in so many ways, but there were some silver linings. And one of those was that people were devoting so much more attention to their own lived environment. Precisely. No, and I think in the antiques trade, in the world of interior design and architecture, there was there was a real sort of upward tick in different categories of furniture, art, people were building, people were remodeling, you know, after lockdown abated. And I think it was ultimately a positive thing for anyone who deals in the home, right? Whether it's a collection that's displayed in the home or you know the makeup of the home, kitchens, bathrooms. It was a really positive thing for many businesses. And I also think so many of our friends who hadn't quite made it online finally made the leap once they were forced to. And it's, it's a bit sad that it was an almost involuntary leap, but a leap it was nonetheless. And you know, I remember we were looking at all those online fairs, which were a first in many cases for the antiques trade, yeah, it's a lot a lot has changed, but I think there's more positive that's come from it than one might expect until you really reflect. Yeah, I totally agree. Um and it's interesting that you know this was also around the same time that you and I started a group that was called uh in no coincidence the New Antiquarians. Absolutely. And uh boy, that group was fun and and we should bring it back then. 
I think, you know, we've been a bit busy. <laughs> and I think during the <laughs> yes. pandemic, we, we decided since we were already, you know, hosting so many sort of digital events <clears throat> for both your business and the magazine and the Sone Foundation, which I ran, then we decided let's not, you know, sort of add more Zoom webinars to, to anybody's plate. But at its core, the New Antiquarians was about enjoying connoisseurship in person, right? Going yeah, to yeah. galleries like yours, like Shrub Soul and handling objects. I remember when we had the meetup in Central Park, sat on antique quilts and, you know, handled our own objects, shared about objects that we loved, passed them around, taught each other about disciplines that we had a specialized interest in, and it was really fun, and it absolutely should come back. You know, since yeah. then, I've I've been a little busy with the book, but uh, I think that I've got you know a little extra time on my hands now. Well, that's nice to hear, and I think that um, you know we ought to be able to ride the coattails of a book called The New Antiquarians. <laughs> yeah, it's all a part of the same big enterprise, right? Advocating for the interest and the enduring appeal of antiques. Yeah, and. You know, I appreciate what you said about the digital events, which, of course, were numerous in those months of 2020 and into 2021. Uh, and digital education is is a wonderful thing. But uh, in, in the antiques world in particular, it's just impossible to replace that physical tactile experience as we had at Central Park or in our behind the scenes tour of the Hispanic Society or the uh wonderful event that we had at uh, Doyle Auctions, where we got to look at uh, their offerings before one of their sales and speak with their connoisseurs about it. You know, that uh, that in-person interaction is what drives so much of what makes the antiques uh, industry interesting to us. So yeah, I agree. I think um, it's high time for us to bring that back. But let's, let's talk about the book, because, um, you know, this is... Uh, First of all, I just have to say right off the bat that it's beautifully designed. Uh, it's it's a great object uh, in itself, which is fitting for the subject matter. Um, you know, the cover, the the decorative elements, the photography. Um, I wonder if you could just tell me a little bit about the design process for the book as a physical object. Yeah. So from the minute that I decided to do a book, I really knew that I wanted it to be experienced as an object. So it makes me really happy that you say that, Ben. Um, it was absolutely the goal. And I think that, you know, there is a sense that we don't just want to talk about objects. We want to embody in the form of the book, you know, a sense of historicity, a sense of quality in the context of materials, a sense of craftsmanship and the, the way that it's bound. Um, and so that was the remit from the beginning. And I was really, really grateful that Fiden and the Monticelli Press, my publishers, allowed me to work with uh, my creative collaborator in graphic design, Elizabeth Goodspeed, who's just brilliant. Uh, she's RISD trained and is obsessed with historic archives. She's actually become mm. a bit of a specialist in sourcing visual references from online archives and even has a newsletter about this called The Casual Archivist, which I highly, highly recommend. So from the beginning of the book's production, we were, you know, intent on incorporating 
historic ornament into the sort of visual landscape of the book. And she went off on a mission to source the most amazing open source imagery and, you know, illustrations that um, you see both, you know, on the cover and on the, the book itself. You see them inside in the context of borders that, that we created for uh, to, to frame the portraits of the subjects of the book and in spot illustrations that are that are scattered throughout. And it was quite an undertaking. I mean, we have a spreadsheet where I have listed the sort of decorative sort of idioms that fit each of the subjects. And she has responded with some test images that she sourced from archives. And I've said, no, you know, she's not quite a Greek meander. She's more of an Art Nouveau, you know, we've gone mm -hmm. back and forth. And, and she was just brilliant at, at sourcing those elements and stitching them together. And uh, we were lucky to collaborate with a really brilliant photographer on the bulk of the book. All but two of the chapters were shot by the same photographer, Brian, Brian Ferry. So from the beginning to the end, you know, it was a really small team that had creative control that was, that was guiding the, the development of the book, which, which was lucky for me. I've literally just gone and signed up for the Casual Archivist newsletter while you were <laughs> answering that question. It's a wise decision. Elizabeth um, is brilliant. So you mentioned the Sewn Foundation. Uh, and of course, when you and I met, you were at the, the Winter Show. And now now you're uh, the director of the Design Leadership Network. Um, it, it seems to an outside observer that uh, your professional trajectory has drifted uh, in the design direction. And so I'm interested to ask you about your perceptions, because now you're intimately familiar and, and acquainted with both the design community and the antiques community, um, which of course overlap to a great degree. But I wonder what you think the interior design community uh, misunderstands about the antiques world. Mm. So, yeah, I, I run now a professional association of interior designers, architects, and landscape architects called the Design Leadership Network. And um, we have about 700 members and partners. So I am deep inside the design world. It's true. And, you know, I, I don't think that it's so much a matter of the design world misunderstanding you know, antiques or the antiques world as the overlap being partial, right? So there, there are parts of the design world that are deeply, deeply acquainted with the world encompassed by the magazine antiques. There are designers, you know, David Scott, for example, comes to mind who actually have a, a practice in dealing antiques. They are connoisseurs themselves. You know, I work with many designers who sit on museum boards, who are great collectors, who work with great collectors. So, you know, on on one side of the Venn diagram are people who are intimately connected to to the antiques world. And then, you know, there are designers that aren't so exposed or who think that antiques may be inaccessible for their clients. And I've had a really great time working to help expose those designers to the antiques world, you know, not necessarily in um, a way that that feels that, that the designers feel, but at the DLN, we even, you know, set up gallery visits, 
museum visits as a part of the activities that we pursue. And I love, you know, exposing designers who may or may not have exposure to this context to it. Uh, we recently brought a group through Gallery Kugel in Paris. And one of the designers said, is this a museum? And we said, mm. it's all for sale. <laughs> and it was kind of a great revelation. And, you know, some great relationships were forged that day. And I think some eyes were opened. So, you know, there's there's a lot more dialogue that can be mounted towards that side of the design world and the antiques world. And that that's absolutely one of my projects right now. And, you know, the concept of the book um, is that we're looking at the collections of young collectors of antiques, historic art, vintage design, but we're looking at those collections very much in the context of their homes. So for people who love a good design book or who love, you know, interior inspiration as as we might call it on social media, there's there's a bit of candy there that hopefully will act as a as a lure bin. And for those mm -hmm. who are not uh, exposed to connoisseurship at the highest level, hopefully they bite on the candy and they get drawn into our, you know, weird and wacky and absolutely magnificent world of antiques. That's yeah. the hope. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I ask because I think that this project of sort of connecting communities, particularly communities who are interested in visual vocabulary, but who don't have the kind of, uh, you know, connoisseurial exposure that you and I do to the antiques world, you know, that's been a mission of yours for a long time and was certainly uh, an important uh, pillar of what uh, the organization, the New Antiquarians, was originally oriented around. And so this book seems like a kind of apotheosis of that principle where, I mean, well, so it, you've started to describe it, but, but for listeners who haven't uh, taken a look at it yet, um, essentially, you know, this is an odyssey of interiors. Um, you know, it's it's a peek inside dozens of, of homes of people who, roughly speaking, belong to to our generation, your your and my generation, um, and and people who, like us and like like you, dear listeners, uh, believe that it is worth investing time and care into the objects that we spend our lives with. Absolutely, and uh, you know, I think that the most obvious uh, differentiator for these collectors is, is that they're younger. But I also think, you know, it's, it's notable that they're not all inheritors of generational wealth. Some of the interiors contain high style and even museum quality material. Others don't. And, you know, I'm, I've run, you know, a vetted Art fair, we've certainly worked at the, the highest reaches of the antiques market, Ben, you and I, but it's important, I think, to embrace, you know, authenticity, condition, quality in whatever context we find ourselves in, right? And sometimes that's an interior where the person may not be able to collect, you know, uh, silver at the highest level. But as you know, Ben, there's some great silver out there to be found, even for a couple hundred dollars if you know how to look, if you know where to yeah. look. So I, I like that, you know, we've been able to embrace a wide constituency in terms of their material ability to collect. And there are certainly some some collectors in the book who've been very creative about, you know, pursuing their, their practice um, with limited resources in some cases. And that's very relatable. It's relatable to me. 
And I think it speaks to one of the changing currents in the antiques world, which is that the sort of socially competitive collecting that characterized the boom time of the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s has abated. You know, and I talk about this in the introduction to the book. It's not that financiers are competing over who has the rarest English furniture in their dining rooms. That has not come back. And I'm very open about that. So with the sort of class-based, socially competitive collecting habit still on the wane, the question is, where is this uptick that I'm saying is happening, happening? And, you know, I do think it's happening among people who are independent of mind, who want to develop an interior that's particularly rich and expressive of who they are. It's, it's a different, probably, slice of society than the one that powered the, the boom times of, you know, the, at the end of the 20th century. And I think the book kind of illustrates that. It's, it's, a, it's a fresh cast of characters. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's an interesting thing for dealers, especially to look at and to consider, you know, who is your client in this emerging generation? They may look a little bit different from the clients that you had 20 years ago. But not only is that, you know, okay, it's actually really, really exciting. Yeah, yeah. Not to mention inevitable. But yeah, I mean, I think um, you and I are all too familiar with the uh, the pining, nostalgia-laden um, conversations with with dealers about the golden age of antique fairs, where where people would line up outside the gates and you know, spend hours in line just to be sure that they were the first to get to X, Y, or Z booth and snap up the best material before their friends could. And I understand the excitement about that, particularly when you have a financial interest in it, um, and there's something very appealing about being able to make a living just by finding good things and selling them to the the most ravenous collectors. Um, But I have to say, and you framed it very well, you know, good riddance to that style of collecting, because that's not, yes, it's collecting, but it's not really about the qualities of the objects that certainly that I find most appealing and compelling and motivating. Um, And I'm excited to see a a new form of collecting, even if it's quieter in some ways, which uh, gives uh, more attention to the kind of personal experience, the intimate personal relationship that uh, is is you know perhaps more inspiring for uh, cohorts of you and me. Yeah, and and you know I do think that there are certainly trends uh, in the antiques market, certainly in the world of vintage design, and we'll continue to see sort of, you know, trending objects, disciplines, stylistic idioms uh, in the future. But one overarching idea here is that at the level of collecting and connoisseurship, the sort of mania over one specific type of object at a given moment, you know, weather vanes or whatever, is less likely to be um, to recur, I think, in this generation, then this slightly more diffuse, um, much more plural sense of, you know, everything is interesting, right? And as a collector, you're on this journey to figure out what you are passionate about, what best expresses 
your vision of the world and what you know you're interested in learning about and and everyone will i think find you know their own path through that um if they dive into collecting now the internet has already sort of caused the doors to blow open um in in fashion in interior design and you know every style you could ever imagine wearing is available to wear to surround mm-hmm. yourself with at home it's less about sort of one idiom characterizing our times now as the sheer availability of of sort of almost anything you could dream of and i think that that does apply to um the antiques world as as well as to the design world at large yeah, and it's exciting yeah. it, but it might mean that you know you don't have two people fighting over um the same chair at an antiques show literally trying to rip it out of each other's hands <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> in a funny way it might spell success for dealers who are able to uh, take advantage of that movement and maybe hard times for auctioneers who really rely on that kind of, well, competition is, of course, the definition of their business model. Yeah, um, it's true. And I mean, of course, certain certain items will appeal to the eye, to the spirit of a given generation or a certain coterie. But, um, you know, I think that if we're looking at this from a financial perspective, just as there are disciplines that have declined uh, since the early 2000s, roughly, there are disciplines that uh, were not assigned great value during those boom times that are now being recognized in this in the sort of hurly-burly of the digital plurality that we live in. Um, you know, I talk about this in the book. There are areas like plywood furniture from the 30s uh, in England that are becoming more and more interesting for a young cohort of collectors. You know, v- certain kinds of Victoriana that were not um, highly in demand, you know, when the boom time was at its apex, that are very interesting to to millennials and Gen Z collectors. Um, and so, you know, I think that there there's a lot to look at and think about both in this book and in the market right now. That, yeah, it's simply different from what we were seeing during the last uh, resurgence for antiques. We'll be right back with Michael. But first, I always like to take a moment just to say thank you for listening. Um, I really appreciate you being here with me to explore curious objects together. Um, If you're enjoying the show, I would really appreciate it if you take a moment to leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts uh, or whatever app you're listening to right now. These reviews are great fun to read. Um, I particularly appreciated someone who said that Curious Objects is entertaining and educational, and completely lacking in stress. <laughs> That's terrific. I'm so glad to hear it. And I hope I can help you feel just a little less stressed out for an hour, at least. If you'd like to get in touch with me, and i love to hear from you, uh, you can email me at curiousobjectspodcast at gmail.com, uh, or you can find my Instagram at Objective Interest. Let's get back to Michael Diaz-Griffith. I was excited to see uh, multiple Curious Objects guests make appearances in in The New Antiquarians, um, including, uh, well, of course, the very first chapter 
uh, which is about the home of Emily Bodie, uh, who joined you and me for the inaugural uh, New Antiquarians event at the Winter Show in the Board of Officers room back in, uh, was that 20, 2018 or 2019? 2018, I think. Yeah. yeah. And this is sort of the cast of characters that, you know, I've been in dialogue with about these things for the last five years. And obviously we've, we've had dialogue together with some of them. And one of the things that I think is notable about the group is that, you know, they're not coming from the heart of the antiques world in many cases. When, when I was at the winter show on the staff side, you and I talked a lot then about how you know, I would sort of make forays out into the fashion world or the design world before I worked in it like mm -hmm. I do now to sort of find the younger people who were in dialogue with the material culture of the past. And, you know, I believe very firmly then that they existed and that they would gain a lot from being at the winter show. I knew that they would gain from that. And, and you know, Emily is one of those people who, long before uh, the runaway success of her fashion brand, even when she was just starting out, was articulating a very scrupulous and careful uh, sort of position in relation to antiques and historic material, textiles in particular, obviously, that, um, that really marked the sensibility of someone who should be in dialogue with the antiques world you know, at the highest level and in the spaces that you and I have been privileged uh, to move in. So she she helped us launch the the, the podcast, um, you know, relationship with the New Antiquarians group. And, you know, my conversations with her and her husband, Aaron, have continued, even as I've seen them gain more and more influence over a wide audience of younger people who love what they do. And, through them have been exposed to this passion for historic sort of aesthetics. Um, you know, there are also some young interior designers, a creative director for a furniture brand in the book. And while I also know many people who are sort of private citizens and not in the design world mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. collect antiques, and we certainly want to give them attention, one of the things that's notable about these young people in the design field is that they certainly display their material in a way that's very interesting and often fresh and different from what we've seen in the past. So it was important to show, I show their interiors because they're a register of how antiques are being displayed a little bit differently now, you know, yeah, as compared yeah. to 10 or 20 years ago and, and Emily and Aaron kind of lead off the book in that spirit. Yes. Well, and of course uh, that group of, uh, sort of antiques adjacent young professionals, people in fashion, uh, people in other design areas, you know, that is often the medium through which the vocabulary of antiques decorative arts makes its way uh, into the general public perception. And I, I think you've been a very important voice in, uh, as we've talked about, building bridges there and, and helping to grease the wheels of that uh, communication. I'm mixing my metaphors, but um, it's uh, it's very interesting to go through your book and see how the subjects range from, on the one extreme, you know, actual antiques dealers to collectors to uh, young professionals with an interior design uh, focus or uh, 
or whether it's a professional interest or a hobby or uh, whether they're just people who, uh, again, think, like to think about the way that they live and the objects that they surround themselves with. It's such a broad spectrum. And, and I certainly hope that people in uh, on the sort of staid uh, connoisseurial side of, of the teeter-totter um, will take a look at that book and, and you start to think a little more broadly uh, about the world that they inhabit or that they could inhabit. Yeah. And, and to see, you know, in a young person on the street who's wearing an outfit that has bows on it or whatever, a potential antiques enthusiast. Um, you know, we, we talked a lot about this when, when we were in dialogue with Emily, but there, sometimes I think we um, get things a little backwards and we focus on who's coming to us in the antiques world with interest in the material culture of the past. But, um, you know, instead I'm very insistent on going to people who would seem to be um, likely converts <laughs> and sort of mm -hmm, mm -hmm. saying, look, did you know that you can actually learn far more about this stuff? Everything that you're interested in and posting on Instagram about has a name. There are all of these cool geeky people who are also concerned with what those things are. You can live with them and you can really inhabit um, a world that is completely enriched by, by exposure to those objects. And, you know, boy, does, does a young person who is sort of predisposed recognize when they're being approached with that opportunity? I see it time and again. We, we sort of overestimate, I think, what their previous, previous exposure might have been. And we think young people have rejected the antiques world, but actually most have not ever been exposed and, you know, as someone who comes from a very humble background in rural Alabama, I count myself among those people. I didn't know that there was a world, a professional world, an academic world in which my private interests could be pursued at such a high level for a really long time. So when people say to me, you know, my kids don't want my things, I, I try to remind them that even if their kids are rejecting their familial patrimony, um, someone else's kids won't. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it is the case that people reject what they grew up with. I think that was largely the case with Gen X, um, not to stereotype because we know lots of antiques geeks <laughs> mm -hmm. who, are, who are Gen X, but, you know, there was a shift, um, I would say, from the second half of the 90s into the 2000s as Gen X came of age and developed buying power towards minimalism, towards mid-century modern material, which at the time was viewed through the lens of disruption rather than continuity by the antiques world, because it hadn't sort of mm -hmm. developed mm -hmm. enough age yet <laughs> to be seen as, as um, just the latest uh, flourishing of the antiques world. And a lot of that was rejection, for sure. I mean, if you were a moneyed person, who grew up with parents, who were collectors of antiques. It was much sexier in 1997 to buy a loft in Tribeca and sparsely furnish it with Danish, um, you know, material. And so the sort of cyclical nature of taste and 
frankly, of the family dynamic where often people end up being closer to their grandchildren than their children. <laughs> yes. It, it certainly um, is reflected in the antiques world. And, and right now, if I were to characterize what's happened in a generational sense, we would say that those great collectors from the 80s and 90s whose children rejected their patrimony are now seeing that their grandchildren don't. Yeah. So whether it's a grandchild instead of a child, or whether it's someone like me who didn't grow up with antiques, but who learned that there was a world to embrace um, in the form of the antiques world. For me, it's all about being open to, to those who um, have the interest, who express interest, or who seem likely to be converted into <laughs> enthusiasts, mm -hmm. instead of wringing our hands because some people won't... Um, won't take to it, you know? There are just some who are never gonna get it and that's okay because there are so, so many others who will get it. Was there, uh, out of all of the uh, chapters in your book, was there one interior that struck you as the most perfect extension of its owner's personality? Oh, wow, that's really, that's a great question. You know, I think that one of the most perfectly expressive interiors in that sense belongs to Pablo Bronstein, mm -hmm. the British Argentine artist. Um, it's one of the few interiors that we were able to shoot in Britain because um, the book was produced uh, during the pandemic. And so <laughs> travel restrictions conditioned, yeah, yeah. you know, whom and where we were able to shoot um, and in further books, I look forward to getting more to Europe because there's a lot that's happening there that's exciting in, in the realm of antiques, but um, as ever. But what's fun about Pablo's house in Deal is that it is his second home. And so it is a little zanier and a little more reflective of his eccentricities than his London flat. And he's a little... He's a little older than many of the other subjects, although he's in his 40s. He wouldn't mind my saying, <laughs> I hope I might be getting a phone call. <laughs> and <laughs> so he's had a little more time to develop that the expression of his sensibility that, you know, that we mm -hmm. think about in mm -hmm. this in this book. And he's able to do that in a very free handed way because, you know, we're dealing with his, a second home. And actually, after the book was completed he um he decided to liquidate most of his collection with the exception of the silver sugar casters that oh, form well, its i'm heart. so happy to hear that <laughs> um, i of course paid special attention to that chapter because of the inclusion of uh, numerous antique silver they're objects they're really worth talking about i have a i have a sort of point to make about those but he did that because you know, he he has a second home, he's financially comfortable, but he's not a financier, he has limited means, and he wanted to start over and do something new uh, mm. with his collecting practice. He said something really interesting to me, which is that, you know, over time, you can become a bit of a prisoner to the taste that you develop. And I feel that all the time. I'm, mm. I'm constantly mm. finding myself sort of ready to start over with an interior that I live in or <laughs> a collection that I'm forming. Um, and so I love that he's doing that, but it really tells me that 
when we shot that interior, it was kind of at the, in, in that collection, it was at the end of its sort of life cycle with, with Pablo, right? And in that sense, I think it's, it's most complete. Whereas many of the other interiors are closer to the beginning of their life cycle. Um, and the collections, I think, will continue to grow and evolve for many, many years to come. But about the silver sugar casters, I think one thing that's notable here is that a lot of the collecting that you see in the book would be characterized as, as, as you know, cross-collecting across disciplines, across yeah. periods. And, and that's just undeniably true. I, I will point out that the expression of of this cross-collecting among millennials and Gen Z collectors is different from what we see, for example, at cross-collecting fairs. Um, I think sometimes cross-collecting is understood as, you know, you have a an 18th century sideboard and you hang an abex painting above it. Right. Um, and I think that's a very inert vision of cross-collecting that gets a bit overstated at fairs and and sort of in contexts where we're trying to promote cross collecting, for me well, cross collecting feels is, a little desperate. It's des yeah no it does feel desperate and I will go on record publicly as saying it does not appeal to younger people. It's a very kind mm -hmm. of um, mm -hmm. it's a bit of an outdated vision of what cross collecting is. Uh, the combinations you see in the book are much much more eccentric, they're headier, they're more creative. I mean, it's uh, it's worth looking at that and really thinking about how a dealer, for example, displays antiques with contemporary material if they want to do that. I mean, it you should do it, everyone should do it and feel liberty when approaching the, the display of antique material. But um, it's, there's a sort of higher bar, I think, to reach now because people are are collecting across um, genres and periods in such a creative way. So I think it's it's up to dealers, it's up to curators and anyone else who wants to be a part of that conversation to also put a great deal of thought and care and intention um, in the way that they uh, conceive of cross-collecting or displaying material in a way that creates dialogues uh, that, that may be, you know, sort of new or unusual. But then Pablo also is a serial collector of silver mm -hmm. in the most traditional manner of, you know, connoisseurship at its greatest. And I think that's notable too, because, you know, we know that in the sort of tragic bust of the antiques market, the top of the market remained relatively stable. It was really the realm of furnishings and serial collecting that suffered. And one might be tempted to think, okay, the young people are bringing back collecting, but it's cross collecting now, and they may not care about connoisseurship, but that's really not true. Just as Abel Sloan and Ruby Woodhouse, um, who are also featured in the book, are becoming leading experts in the world on plywood furniture from the 30s, of all things, Pablo has become, I mean, I would say expert in this particular um, form of, of sugar casters from the 18th century that, as you've seen, Ben, he's, he's collecting um, in his house in Deal, Kent, which is featured in the book. And 
It's just connoisseurship at its best. He follows the market. He follows the auctions. He does probably fight with people you know, at, mm-hmm. at antiques fairs and pull, pulls the, the sugar casters out of their hands. Um, but at the same time, he's also very creative and liberated in how he talks about them. He made a suggestive comment that he appreciates the sort of phallic shape of the sugar casters right. and jokes that they have a good feeling in the hand. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's connoisseurship, you know, 2.0, but it is connoisseurship. And I think that I've that's never tried that sales pitch with, uh, with casters myself. I mean, but think of your future now, Ben, I, I see uh, a trend for sugar casters on the horizon. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay. Um, yeah, I'll stick your commission in the mail. Um, to ask you the converse question, was there an interior that uh, from the book that really surprised you when you saw it that you thought was incongruous with what you thought you knew about uh, about its denizen? You know, I don't think that there was a sort of mismatch between the personality of the subject and their interior. Most of the people in the book our friends, you know, it was um, produced in a very familial way, partly because it was produced during the pandemic. So it was harder to call people up and say, hey, can I invade your house <laughs> during the <laughs> pandemic uh, to shoot it? The um, There is a narrative, though, that I think relates to this question of surprise. And my friend Camille Okio, who's in the book, um, is kind of the the star of this story to me. And it really relates to changing tastes as we move from millennial to Gen Z collectors or collectors who are in their 40s and 30s versus collectors in their 20s. Um, so, you know, when we first started talking about all this stuff, Ben, I was really convinced that, you know, millennials love or could love or should love antiques because millennials actually love color and pattern and texture. And, you know, at the time, Lady Gaga and Gucci under Alessandro Michele with all of its color and historical referencing. And, you know, I just did not buy this narrative that millennials were obsessed with Ikea. I really felt like that narrative described what had happened with Gen X, right? The people who really did bring minimalism to the fore, um, in, in culture and in the design world and that millennials were something else was going on with them. And I, you know, I'd constantly say we just haven't come into our buying power. Yeah. I don't know. Millennials may have been stuck with Ikea, but that's different from loving it. But it's yeah, exactly. And what year did you graduate um, college, Ben? 2010. Yeah. So I graduated in 2009 right into the recession. So, you know, I always said, cut us some slack. I mean, you know, we might be living with Billy bookcases, but it's just because we we can't afford what we really want yet. Um, And those of us who don't have parents who are collectors can't just go to mom and dad's house and steal a couple of antiques. You know, it takes a little time to build up. And I was noticing that as popular as Ikea was, you know, perhaps in cosmopolitan centers, uh, perhaps out of necessity, millennials actually seem to be more attracted to the tat at anthropology, you know, the high street store right. that does a lot of riffing on historical references, et cetera. And so my feeling was there's really something here with millennials and historic ornament pattern, et cetera. 
And I think that, you know, the years that we were um, developing the New Antiquarians group and the years in which Instagram was rising to prominence and importance really bore that out. I mean, we saw the, the sort of advent of what has been called grand millennial taste, which can be quite dubious under cer certain circumstances. Mm -hmm. I say that as someone whose photo was printed in the New York Post at about like 12 by 18 inches with the word grand millennial like plastered on top of it. <laughs> it's a little embarrassing because some of it is kind of icky, you know, like not good lettuce wear, but fake lettuce wear yeah. <laughs> that people yeah. are buying yeah. at inflated prices online. But that really did bear out that, you know, whether it's vintage material that people are buying on Cherish or, you know, millennial women wearing nap dresses that are that have puffy sleeves, there was something there. And I'd say that a lot of the interiors in the book kind of relate not to grand millennial taste, but to this millennial sensibility that's very eclectic, right? Very colorful and full, you know? wall to wall, floor to ceiling um, schemes for rooms that are packed with antiques, vintage material, art, and um, personal finds that that are combined in novel ways, but often, you know, in very concentrated ways that bring all of the objects into very close dialogue. And I think Gen Z, you know, people from sort of their early 30s down, more broadly speaking, have a slightly different take. And I think that it's a little bit calmer and cooler, that there's actually a little bit of minimalism in the background, almost of the sort that you see in the work of Axel Vervoet, where mm. there are antiques and antiquities and natural specimens, but they're they're distributed in a way that lets the objects breathe, you know? And instead of the wall behind being lacquered as they are in my house, because I'm admittedly like, you know, at the heart of the maximalist millennial mm -hmm. <laughs> taste, there's a, there's a taste for a white wall or a beige wall or plas you know, skimmed plaster walls and a couple of beautiful things um, displayed really quietly and and almost more in the manner of a museum than a residential interior. And, you know, we all have references for that way of displaying things. You know, even Jerry Lauren's propensity to put weather vanes in front of a white wall <laughs> kind of speaks yeah, to yeah. a similar taste. But I do think that if anything, we're seeing an increasing interest in antiques or a continued increase in interest among 20-somethings but an evolving way of displaying them. And I think that there's even a narrative here of, of kind of minimalism and antiques finally learning how to get along, you know? I mean, and it's, it's no coincidence that the Bauhaus is now over 100 years ago. So I think modernism is kind of entering the pantheon of the antique. And I think that the pluralism of taste that we see on the internet is just allowing young people to be extremely free in the way that they think about their relationship to design and antiques and collecting. And as a result, we're seeing with someone like Camille, the dawn of a slightly, a slightly different taste than the one that's maybe 
at the heart of the book. And I suspect that volume two of the New Antiquarians will contain other expressions of that beyond Camille's apartment in, in Brooklyn. And indeed, I've just returned from Europe where I was doing a bit of scouting and I can confirm that there are some really killer collections that even 20-somethings are assembling there that contain antiquities and old master drawings and really, really special material that in many cases is displayed in, in a way that allows the objects just a great deal of room to breathe and to be seen mm. as objects. So that's exciting to me. And I think Camille's interior, um, while it's a modestly scaled apartment, gives you a sense of that look. So for listeners or for readers of your book who find these homes inspiring, um, do you have any advice for how to kickstart their own new antiquarian lives? Well, knowing the audience of this podcast, Ben, uh, in particular, I would say report to your nearest antiques dealer. <laughs> and you and I both constantly tell, you know, younger people or those who are new to the antiques world, dealers love to talk. Dealers <laughs> yes. love to tell stories. And occasionally listen. Occasionally, yes. Occasionally listen. And by the way, I have sent younger people to dealers to talk and they have occasionally been rebuffed. Mm. And they've come back to me and said, actually, that dealer wasn't very open. And I say, you know, maybe they thought you weren't going to become a client or whatever, but the next one will mm -hmm. get it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, because go, the next one will be Shrubsole. The next one will be exactly. I send those cases directly to you guys, Ben, because I know <laughs> they'll have a warm, a warm reception. No, but in, you know, nine out of 10 cases, when I make those introductions, um, friendships form, clients are developed. And I, I always think that's the best entree, you know, into collecting is get to know a dealer and learn about what's possible in terms of developing not only a relationship with objects as a consumer and then as a connoisseur, but understanding that relationships drive an enormous part of what we do, right? And that's enormously attractive, I think, to anyone um, who is looking for something between a hobby and an obsession <laughs> that you could enter this amazing sort of family where everybody is interested in things and interested in history and telling stories. It's just an amazing privilege to be a part of that world. And I do find that people who are new to this really benefit from having an early exposure to real conversation with a dealer, as opposed to sort of skimming the surface for, you know, an extended period of time in online auctions, et cetera. I think it's important to make contact with the human side of the antiques world early. And then you and then you make that contact often, as you and I know. And you know, then I would say dive in. Um, there is, I have a lot of time for fretting about authenticity, date, condition. You know, a lot of our time, Ben, is taken up with 
concern for those things, um, conservation issues and the like, but for a beginner, for novice collector, those factors don't need to play in the same way in their range of considerations when thinking about antiques. It's fine to buy something that's a little wonky or that has condition issues. And, you know, especially if you're buying um, at a more modest price point, it's, it's just it's not even a factor. It's, it's about, do you want to live with the thing? Is it still usable? Um, is it something you will enjoy living with and looking at and holding in your hand? Um, we care about quality and condition and the like, but for the beginner, I, I think it's more important to develop a sense of freedom and comfort, you know, with objects and, and to not approach them in a neurotic way or in a cagey way because you're afraid that you're going to make the wrong decision. Set, set the amount of money that you're comfortable spending, not as an investment, but just for the pleasure of it, for the pleasure of the thing, and take the leap. And as you develop connoisseurship skills and deepen your exposure to the field, you can then join our ranks, Ben, and stay awake at night wondering if you've just made a bad decision at, at auction <laughs> because the condition is maybe not what you, it, it's been reported to be exactly. And you can start thinking about all of the implications of that. But at first, don't even think about it. Just dive in and start enjoying this sort of new relationship to objects where you realize you can have them in your life. You can surround yourself with them. They can become foils for your own storytelling. They can become sort of, you know, instigators of research that you conduct if that's your interest. And, you know, someone like Camille in the book is a great example of a person who she knows enough about what she's collecting to make an informed decision when she acquires an object. But I think a huge amount of the pleasure for her is in the ongoing research that she then conducts into the object, right? Yeah. And when you go over to her house, she not only tells you a story about the objects, but she often tells you, gives you an update on her own research and her own understanding of, of the material. And I think that's a very active and interactive way of conceiving of, of our relationship to things. And that I think can come before the more, you know, neurotic side of connoisseurship which hopefully is everybody's destination because everybody needs to be as neurotic as you and I are Ben about objects, right? That's <laughs> well, I, if I'm losing sleep, I don't see why somebody else shouldn't be too. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, Michael, thanks so much for joining me. It's been a treat and, uh, and it's great to have an excuse to bring you back on, on curious objects. I hope you'll, uh, you'll move episode two or uh, volume two along quickly. So We'll have another chance to get get you back here. I'll do it, and let's find other other reasons to hang out again. It's been too long, and uh, and to anyone who's listening who says I'm not interested in the book, buy it for a young person. <laughs> <laughs> buy it as a gift. I, it really is to me about um, having a visual representation of what's possible that that we want to share with young people. So, you know. 
I hope it's inspiring. And I really, above all, hope that it inspires younger people to begin collecting if they haven't already. The author is Michael Diaz Griffith. The book is The New Antiquarians at Home with Young Collectors. Thanks for spending your time with us. Today's episode was edited and produced by Sammy Delati uh, with social media and web support from Sarah Bellata. Sierra Holt is our digital media and editorial associate. Our music is by Trap Rabbit, and I'm Ben Miller. Thank you.